generally a representative here from all of our sponsors, um, so please feel free to reach out. Entertainment Partners, great payroll service, uh, as well as Central Casting, many other things you're going to need. We've got Moses and Schreiber, uh, accounting consultant and business consultant. Um, FWRV Law Firm, uh, entertainment law firm. We've got JVC and uh, their great 4K camera over here. Just take a look at that. Um, Lightiron, um, post-production and uh, production. Transit Wireless is providing all of our Wi-Fi. And of course, uh, Cineverse, who's running the panel today. So uh, thank you all for coming. Let me introduce to you uh, now Tom Fletcher from, uh, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> Tom from, uh, from Cineverse. Yeah, it's good. There you go. Can you hear me? Okay, thank you very much for coming. I'm Tom Fletcher, as he said, uh, from Cineverse. Uh, we're a division of VER, if you don't know us. Uh, we're the camera rental side of the business with offices in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Miami. And um, uh, we're excited to be here, part of the New York Lounge, which has been a big staple here at uh, Sundance. It's a great place, for, great way for us to launch our New York office which will really be opening, the Cineverse office will be opening this sometime this summer. So uh, today we have a good panel here. Uh, let me introduce them. Uh, Chris Katakis. I'm pronouncing that right? Kachikis. sorry. I should have asked that one ahead of time. Uh, he has a film here at the, at the festival, Dog Bowl. Um, he shoots a lot of commercials. That's where I know him. But I actually first met him here uh, at Sundance uh, back in 2002. He was part of the Sony Dreams project. He shot a short for uh, Peggy Sirota, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, that, that kind of got the, uh, the ball rolling in the commercial market with uh, digital cinematography. So great to have Chris here. And then another Chris, Chris Rahano, fellow Chicagoan. Uh, he has a short here a million miles away. He uh, has been kind of come up in the industry, in the cinematography world as a camera operator. Uh, and also was a gaffer before that, so uh, happy to have Chris here. Uh, Dalmar Weaver-Madsen, she has a film here uh, with uh, Chris Swamberg as the director, and uh, she also does a lot of commercials, and she's bi-coastal, New York and Los Angeles, uh, and we're excited to have her. David Kruta, hardcore New Yorker, uh, shoots a lot of independent films there, was most recently honored uh, with emerging cinematographer um, by Local 600. They put together a, a group of, of members of Local 600 that are kind of climbing the ranks and uh, David was just most recently honored for that and two years ago he had a film here, it's Concussion was the name of the film? Yes. And uh, so we're happy to have, have this panel here today. So what we're going to kind of go through is talk about uh, the role of the cinematographer in the independent film uh, world and uh, kind of the, the process that they are going through. Um, if you want to jump in with questions, feel free. We'll make this kind of very informal. That's kind of the, the vibe here in, uh, at Sundance, especially in this uh, lounge. Um, and I'll start with throwing out uh, to the panel, whoever wants to jump on the first question is, is you know, when, when you're dealing with a film, who's making the choice on the, on the camera technology that's, uh, that's going to be used? And when are they getting you involved into that? Chris, want to jump in? I guess depending on budget, ultimately it's the, the, the hope that they would ask me first, you know, like what they want to go gear-wise, but 
sometimes it's it's kind of dictated by their budget. You know, just like well, you know, we got to stick somewhere lower. And on your short film, what camera did you use? We used Canon's five D seventy. Okay, the five D five D seventy. Budget driven. It was budget driven. And did they get you involved in the decision to to choose the camera? Sure. Yeah, they did. We okay. we talked about other options, and I thought if that you know if that would with the also with a different lens selection, it, it helped out too. We used uh, Leica ours. Okay. So, so that it uh, created a, different, a nice enough look for us with Canon. Uh, we shot on the Alexa um, for unexpected. Um, I think we were, we were all talking about this a little bit before that oftentimes when someone approaches you, they might already have some uh, camera system in mind or because of their budget level. Um, and you're, but you would hope that the decision for what you're going to shoot on would come out of the creative collaboration that you have with your director. You talk about what kind of story it is, what what camera system needs to serve the story, what is going to work best for how quickly you need to move and how you're still obviously trying to capture like a very evocative image, not necessarily beautiful, except it can be like gritty or what, what is it that the story demands, like dictates what you need to shoot on, but then sometimes you're like, okay, your arm's tied and this is what you have to use, so you have to figure it out. But occasionally, you know, like when someone approaches you and they're like, oh, I wanna, sh you know, I just interviewed for something, they're like, we wanna shoot on film. And I was like, oh man, like I haven't heard that for a long time. This is like really exciting, but. You, you, I think as a cinematographer, you have to be flexible and still try and like capture the essence of the story with whatever tools that you're given. So to be, you can make it work. Um, I'm thinking back to American Sun, which I don't. I think that was like 2007, maybe. We shot that on 35, and that was a situation where we talked about a high definition. Um, uh, early on, but I also knew that like, there's creatively and then there's like practically for your film. And we had like African-American actor in a car, interior, lots of driving stuff during the day. And I knew that a digital, digital format at that time wasn't gonna hold the backgrounds. And I didn't have the money to for lights on process trailers or, and I mean, it was me in the back seat of the car or in the passenger seat. And so we actually got at that time, like a great deal from Kodak because we knew people, you know, and like 35 was the way to go because it was going to hold everything. And so I, something I say to my producers, especially on lower budget stuff is, and, when, and I mean, I have access to Alexas because of all the commercial stuff I do. I can usually drag them out for, you know, special projects. But a lot of times those heavier duty formats like an Alexa are going to save you time on set lighting, controlling light. And, um, you know, it's a little bit of heavier camera, but it's, it does, it saves Grips, that's manpower, that's grip, that's man days. You know what I mean? I use those bigger formats to make things easier and get away with more on set, and then you can handle things later. That's, that's how I look at that's, you know, that choice. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that topic of, of talking to your producer and that relationship between the cinematographer and the producer and how you're able to convince them that uh, they could spend a little bit more and it will ultimately save them money in other areas. So we'll come back, come back to that. David? Um, yeah, I think if, if someone approaches you and they say, we want to shoot film, I think that's basically the only time you say, great. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I, I think it always becomes a discussion, and you have to force it to be a discussion, because if they come up to you and say, we want to shoot on this camera, it's not always the best decision once you go through all the creative and the, the needs and budget and all that. And I've been lucky enough to do a lot of travel work, and so I have a director that came to me and he goes, I want to shoot 120 frames, it's going to be you and me, and we're going to be in a jungle in Indonesia with no access to power. I'm like, great. So, really narrows down the choices, and you know, I put an Epic in a backpack with you know, Canon lenses, and we hiked out into the jungle and shot 120 frames. And, ran a generator three hours a night to charge batteries and hope we didn't run out during the day. We couldn't do that with you know, anything else at the time. That was three or four years ago. So one of the things that's um, emerging is this uh, call about 4K. I'm just curious if any of you guys have seen that and uh, what your opinion is on that as far as a choice and uh, what you'd like to see you know, moving forward with cameras. Go ahead, just jump in whenever you have a I haven't shot 4K, but I've heard the complaints about people having to go there as, um, and it feels like it's coming from people that aren't filmmakers that just are, you know, they're looking to the future for their companies, whether it's Amazon or whatever, and they're saying this should be the highest, and they see that 4K number and they think, oh, that's the best, we have to have, we have to have that, um, where I think some of us probably think, you know, hashtag love the Alexa. You know, I don't know. I think it, also another thing that comes up sometimes with 4K is that people, not a lot, but often, sometimes they'll be like an editor or someone, they'll be like, well, we can, we can pop in for a closer shot of that. You know, we got, we got 4K, res. So if it's not tight enough, we'll just go in. You know, so just shoot it wide, shoot around it. We'll shoot it tighter. So then they change your frame a bit. For close up, that happens. You know, if we do some green screen stuff, and that that'll happen a lot. But um, that that's been something that's that's come up before. Yeah, I just interviewed for a comedy thing that, that's going to be shooting like super fast, and like we want to shoot 4K in case something funny happens, we can pop in and make that. And I was like, yeah, I understand it because comedy is an effervescent thing; you have to get it when it's there. And but you're like, man, like I, I'm limited in my creative control of how I can help the story. Um, uh, we shot a 23-minute take for the last feature I did, and so we shot higher res because we knew that, like, say you've got, like, a perfect take except for, like, minute whatever, and you need to do a tiny little zoom to, like, help you get through it. And we were like, this is a good idea. It's like, it was a tool that we used, but then I was involved in that, like, little zoom that we had to make. And it's actually funny because the uh, the guy we got the special effects guy, we got to do it, the, the operating was too like perfect. And I was like, I wouldn't operate like that. It's like, I had to walk him through like, if you see the person starting to like sit, like you're gonna be like moving with them a little bit, but then they're gonna, you're gonna, you just have to make it so it fits naturally with them, not so like computerized with the zoom, if that makes sense. Right. So it's like, unless you know that you're gonna be able to be like really involved in that post process, I feel like 4K can be like dangerous for you as a cinematographer. I would rather have more latitude and more resolution in the new cameras that are coming out. I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the dynamic range idea better than the numbers idea. And I think um, 4K, to me, it's a number. And it's not a character. It's not a texture. You know, and I think that we probably are like, you know, I love the 5D and the 7D for certain things. You know, and I would, and that's, you know, 1K. And I'm happy to go there. Um, 
if it's right for the project and it's you know an intimate thing and it, you can get away with it. I think also um, for if producers and directors out there that are, I'll tell you about the movie I didn't do this year, but um, I was big on the Alexa and things happened and I couldn't do this film in New York in the fall. And the director said to me, oh, you know, we were talking about the next, the guy that's going to do the, do the movie instead of me. And he's like, oh, he's talking about the red. I know you love the Alexa. What do you think? And I said, hey, you know, if your DP is really comfortable with a certain tool, you got to respect that. And like, he's going to do well with, or she is going to do well with whatever, you know, their paint, what their paintbrushes are. So um, defer to that. And that's worth a lot. So whatever cinematographer wants I think she carry a little weight yeah I think 4k just really has to be looked at as another tool um, you know everyone's probably familiar with how Fincher does the, the crop and then does all the stabilization and that's a really great way to use higher res especially if you're shooting 6k you can have 4k output that's stabilized and that can be a look for a project um, but if you shoot 4k and then you're left out of the edit you're left out of all the creative decisions in post and someone's like making all these, um, you know, they're making close-ups out of your mediums. It's not what you and the director discussed on set. It's not your creative vision. And I think that has to be discussed. Like that's where a cinematographer should be involved in post when you're shooting high res with that in mind. And if you use it as a tool, you can really bring the most out of it, especially in something like comedy, like you were saying, you know, if you go in into it with that being a discussion, um, then you can probably get a lot more out of it than someone else that doesn't have the knowledge that you do, um, you know, to make those framing uh, choices. Yeah, I feel like it, it basically comes down to you need to, this is to be a discussion you have with the producer and the director before and you get in your contract or whatever that you're going to be involved in these things if you're going to have the zooming. And it's like crazy that we have to like have that now as part of our like, keep us in the loop or whatever. And I know you're going to talk about lenses, but if you're using anything vintage or anything that's not, the minute you start blowing in on it, you're going to have a lot of other issues besides, you know what I mean? If you try to make a 25 into an 85 4K push-in, uh-uh, it's going to fall apart. I mean, I mean to our eyes probably. So let's let's go to the lenses then now. You know, um, when you're making a decision on camera, we're seeing a lot more attention actually focused on the optic side of it, because that can differentiate and give a cinematographer a look. Um, what are the choices? What are you using? I mean, I, you use the cooks for, for your film, Damar. I did it. It was my first time. And I have to admit, I think I like Zeiss better. <laughs> I mean, I might be the only person in the world that says that, but I like that, like, sh the sharpness of it. Because I, th because I think the way that I like to light things um, introduces a lot of, like, not direct flare, but a little bit of flaring in. And so I'm kind of adding a softer look to a, a harder lens. So with my normal lighting was like, I was adding a softer look to a softer lens. And I was like, oh shit, that doesn't, <laughs> I gotta like change that up. But um, it's really um, one of the most important decisions I think for your project more than camera is the lens is like what, what qualities they bring. And the older lenses like you're talking about have so many like technical imperfections, but that have such emotional impact and like can make a scene really beautiful and like, that is something that you want to go and do some lens tests together with your director and show them different options and like find out like how it's best going to serve the story. And I, I, I know you were saying, talking about anamorphics. It's like, um, I think some people are like, oh, I have to shoot anamorphic to make it look like most expensive, most best. I 
thing I can get my hands on. And you're like, that might not be like what's going to work best for your story. So you have to figure out like, what is, what is that bound? Morphic flair. I got to get the flair. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th there was a, a film that I shot on, on an Epic and it was a ballet piece and it was in a studio. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of windows. We used the cooks, be pancros that, um, actually you guys brought in for me. And, uh, it was great. I mean, the, the flares were nice. It was also a period piece, so it was 60s, so it kind of had a soft, nice look to it. It was a perfect, perfect choice at that point. We could have easily gone with a couple of zooms to make it easier because there was a lot of ballet, a lot of dance and stuff, but I opted for primes because I knew that those speed pancreas would look really nice. Yeah. So that was, that was one choice that I made. Um, I did a project recently uh, which was set in the 80s in Soviet Russia, and we had like an element of like dirt and grunge to it. So we shot on um, Lomo Square Fronts and it was on the Alexa and it was really all about just making it feel dirty and grungy. And you know, it's a story about miners. They're, they're just like down in this warehouse digging this, this hole. And there were times when, you know, my camera assistant would like pull the lens off and like start cleaning off the dust. I'm like, no, oh, leave it on there. Like let that, let it hit and let's see like those pieces of dust on there. It just goes to show that it's, you know, cameras and lenses and all that, it's about your subjective eye. And I like to feel the camera. I like to feel that, that you're showing or not showing a certain thing and you're trying to give it a certain emotional vibe. And if that means, you know, a bunch of dust gets kicked up on the lens and you leave it on there and let, let, let it flare out, go for it, you know? Yeah, yeah I bet that if you, if you had shot, like, really cleanly anamorphics and that it would have like had a hollowness to it. It wouldn't have that texture that like feeds to what those men are going through and stuff. And you have to find the thing that's like appropriate to those people. Yeah, I think just agreeing, having a massive agreement, but I think lenses is like the kind of way to give your piece a unique flavor. And it's probably not thought about enough. I mean, by us it probably is, but on the director producer side, it's like, you know, that's a really important choice. I think the other thing about using vintage glass, like Baltars or old, like Lomo, I've shot some stuff with Lomo anamorphics, like really old stuff. Um, and the reason I think they can also be a useful tool is um, now I feel like before you had film stock and there was so many different things you could do to your film stock. Like you could do so many things in the lab side, on set side, and it would give your film like a unique texture and there were so many different stocks. And now it's like, kind of gets down to a decision on a certain level of project. It's like, are we going to go Alexa or are we going to go red? Or, and it's like everybody's films start looking the same. Then You're using the same high-quality glass, same high-quality thing. So it's like this search to find a combination of filtration or older lenses or whatever that makes this a unique look for you as a cinematographer and also that fits your story so that everything doesn't just start looking the same. I feel like that's something, and that's maybe one of the reasons why Hawk is like making uh, newer glass but based off old the ones they just released that based off the old 70s yeah, the, coatings. The vintage lenses. Yeah, so they're like new and they perform like a new lens and they're, they, you know, they're not going to let you down on set in some weird way, but the coatings are actually like from the 70s, same uh, chemical. They went back and found the same chemical recipe that they had used and did it. So you guys find all this great optics. How do you uh, work the relationship with your producer to get all these great tools? What are your tricks or what is you know what what are the keys for you in managing that relationship so you can have the tools that you want to recognize what you want to do and what the director wants to do it's all sales 
everything. Remember that. But I, I think that's true. I mean, I think well, it is, yeah. I mean, I think we'll all, I can't tell you how many projects I've been on where it's like, I've turned to my assistant and we're finally shooting or whatever, and I'm like, you know what, I think the hardest part was getting everybody to this point with this package or, you know, like convincing, you know, to shoot on 35 for American Sun or, you know, like, oh, we're going to do a dog bowl on the Alexa and it's going to be great or, you know, and yeah, you can afford it, don't worry about it. <laughs> but it's a lot of sales. I mean, I think all of our jobs, everybody's got to sell, everyone's selling something and we're probably selling you know, ideas to our directors. I, I, I feel like it's probably because I'm naive and young in my career, but um, having not shot tons of things, but I, I kind of also feel like you're building a, you're building a hopefully a long-term relationship with the people that you work with, and you also don't want to bankrupt them on their first, whatever it is that you're doing. I say so that a lot. You know, so like, it's, I'm not here to make a ton of money. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like you need to find, like, what's going to serve the story best, but also is going to let this director be able to not be afraid about the budget so much so that they can take chances and go for those performances and have time to do that stuff so that they can make a great movie and then hopefully you can make another great movie with them later. So it's like you need to, it's a balance between finding the, the right look, but how, to, how do you make, you can make cut, where can you make these cuts so you can get the parts that you really need and how can you get creative in the other places where you couldn't afford those things? I'm talking indie films. But commercials, you should totally go for the most expensive, best thing that they will give you. <laughs> because they have money, and they're trying to sell a product. So, like, you know, they're, they're not in danger of not making another commercial, you know. I, I feel like I've had the good fortune of working with good producers and directors that respect, where there's a mutual respect as artists, where they kind of, Tell me, and we've kind of, I feel like we found each other on certain indie projects where it's like, you know, we're here together because we respect each other. Yeah. And what do you think? I mean, I'm not going to tell you you should reblock your scene because the actor, you know, just can't hit that mark. I'm going to, you know, we're going to do it this way because that's how you feel they should walk through the room. They should do the thing. So I think um, as a, you know, just that respect, I think I've worked, worked out really well where I haven't had to, you have to get, so much. yeah, I didn't have to, Hand, get on my hands and knees for, you know, a couple extra batteries. Yeah. So. The, one last thing as I pass over. I'm sorry, I'm totally talking like a ton. The other thing is, like, getting supported so much. Like, our film, we fell in love with the cooks for this project. Chris loved them. And, like, Jim and everybody over there, like, you guys made it happen when we didn't have the money for it. And it was, like, I can't thank you enough for that. And we wouldn't have been able to do that. Kind of jumping into, kind of, you guys, all of you shoot commercials as well. And Chris alluded to it earlier that, do a lot of work and you can lean on your suppliers not only your camera house but all your different vendors and other crew can you kind of talk about how you push this around then <laughs> well i mean i think i want to pass it to you but i think like i've definitely based my entire career on what you just said it's like repeat business same vendors loyalty and like when you need it it's there you know and they understand that you know my you know my electrical team, it might be a couple gaffers, but you know, it's like, no, we're gonna get that. No, no, we're gonna, we need the Aerie Max. We need that. Or whatever, you know, it's like, um, and same with camera houses, you know, and then getting the vintage stuff. Any camera house or any supplier, if you've been a good, a good customer in other areas, that's a way for them to repay you. you 
you want to do a, a narrative piece, you don't want to do another commercial, another Procter & Gamble spot or a car spot, and here's a way for you to explore your creative vision, and you've given us a lot of business, it's a way for us to kind of help out. So I don't think any rental house, uh, speaking on behalf of other camera houses, I don't think they have a problem with that. I think it's a good thing. So David, you want to throw in your two cents? Yeah, I mean, I think relationships are, are really big, and, and you know, none of us got into this to get rich, you know? Like, if you wanted to get rich, you could be a banker. But we're here to make movies and make art. Get rich at heart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think when you have a good relationship with a rental house or with friends that own gear or anything like that, um, there's a mutual understanding that, you know, if you get that commercial job, you bring in, you know, some a package that has no discount on it. But then you say, okay, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to do something narrative. I'm going to do something passionate. Um, how free can you make this package? You know. Yeah. Did you see him smile when he said a package with no discount? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where's that? No, no discounts. I like you. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're when you're working with these producers, what crew person do you want to bring with you? If you, they say to you, you can bring one person on your independent film shooting, you know, in Western New York. Who would you bring? <laughs> yeah, that's my study cam guy. Right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but we see that. I mean, they'll bring their their camera operator, you know, gaffer, first AC. You know, just curious, who's who would you bring? I mean, you have one person. You're going to do a small film in a remote location. They're saying you can bring one person. Who's that person? I mean, it could be based on the script and what you yeah. have to do. But um, I shoot a lot of available light. So for me, um, you know, especially when you're shooting like run and gun, small camera package, for me a, a really, really strong AC, it helps a lot because then you don't have to manage the camera and you can find the moments and all you have to do is map out the locations where the sun is, that sort of thing, and know that your camera's gonna be ready to get that sunrise shot. And that, you know, and then after that you can add a steady cam. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I kind of go the other way with, um, I, I feel like with, I feel like you can, you got to like gamble and like where, what else are you going to get locally? So I think you can get some pretty good ACs um, around the world now. And so I would, if I had to take one person in the jungle, I would take my key grip, Brady. And uh, I would do that because what, what the, again, sales, what I would say to the producer is I'm like, this guy's like morale, awesome. He's, everyone loves him. He's, you know, a great spirit to have on the set to bring everybody up. And he also, um, yeah, I'm like competing with this song. Um, and he's a, yeah, I know, Brady. Um, <laughs> But he's also, I call him just like a utility filmmaker. Like the guy knows, he anticipates, he's somebody that is on my team that like knows what I want five minutes before I need it. So that is invaluable. I feel like it's such a tough decision. I'm always torn between my gaffer and my first AC. But um, I've had the pleasure of working with a number of amazing ACs and gaffers all over. But I think, uh, so if this particular moment, I would still say my first because if it's soft, it's soft, and you can't fix that. You know, like, there's just, like... And there's just people who have that touch, and people who are great focus pillars but don't have that that touch where they're watching the scene, and they're, like, someone does something unexpected that is happening for performance, and they're right about to... And they're suddenly 
if they're really into it, they're gonna they're not gonna lose them just because they went to this new mark because they had this amazing weird performance moment. So I think it's like finding those people who can like who've probably just watched a lot of TV and movies and can feel that like okay, I'm gonna ride this and hit it. And that's I think a little harder though. I've been pretty lucky when I've traveled. I don't know. Uh, if it were up to me, I'd bring my whole electric crew from the gaffer. All right, but I'll pick the gaffer. Um, having come up as a gaffer myself, um, my best boy ended up bumping up to gaff. So as he's gaffing a lot more now, it's hard to get him. But that would be my first choice, a gaffer, for sure. Can we uh, go back to you know, the, the difference between commercial shooting commercials and shooting features? What, what do you see as the, the biggest challenge coming over into the independent film community as opposed to you just finished a, a spot for a major car company and now they want you to, to go shoot a, an indie short or an indie film? What, what do you see? This, how's your, how does your life change? Um, let me think about it. Um, I'll just put it as a metaphor. It's like um, being in a fancy car service that takes you somewhere or taking the bus. And there's good sides and bad sides. You're in the fancy car service, you're going to go from, you're going to be in really comfortable, but you're going to go from point A to point B, and there's not a lot of freedom in what you're going to do. If you're on the bus, you're going to go some weird way and see a bunch of cool stuff, and you can get on and off whenever you want. I think with an indie film, there's a lot more freedom to try things out, and, you know, like there's more space to do stuff. With a commercial, it's very controlled. You're only going to shoot certain things, it's all been boarded. There's a lot of clients on set. They're going to have a lot of two cents about weird things like, how the tissue paper unwraps inside of the box and you're like who cares nobody cares about that but I guess it's really important so we do have to reshoot it even though the lighting was perfect that time okay fine but on an indie film there's more like I guess I'm more drawn to story and performances so you get to do a lot of a lot more creative you get to be a lot more creative or I don't know it's a different kind of creative because you have more tools on the other one but you there's less creatives involved really less heads talking to you you know there maybe you have to go back to video village and then you have to explain it to six people Whereas maybe it's just you, the director and producer. In the commercial world. In the commercial world. You know, you have to, you have a bigger, a bigger set of eyes right there on the monitors. Whereas, you know, if it's just you and the director and producer and script suit, you're like, well, yeah, I blew that, so let's do it again. Not, why did you blow four takes? That's how soon it's done, you know, that kind of thing. So. Or I'd even say, like, if you have to convince on a commercial, it's like you're going to go back and, like, talk, and then they're all going to talk to each other for, like, an hour about whether they should or shouldn't do it. And an indie film, you're like, let's shoot it and see. And they're like, well, that was awesome, or that did not work. Let's just do it a different way. And it's like faster. You can try it out faster than you can talk about it, usually. Um, for me, I, I think that uh, the biggest difference is going back to my sales. It's all sales, sales, sales. On an indie thing, I'm like trying to sell my crew on the idea. I'm like, maybe we'll get in Sundance with this short film, guys. It'd be good. And and then on the you know on a on a TV commercial it's just you know they're massive and tons of money and everybody's in a nice hotel and it's great, but um you know you have to do I have to do a lot of the sort of my 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 attention turns to my crew and like morale and like I know you're getting gas money and I really appreciate it and thank you. Yeah yeah exactly yeah so it's like my that's how I view it you know and like that sort of. But your crew that you're bringing over is the crew that you've used on your commercials. Oh yeah, it better be. It better. They better say yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's. I think for me, it's all about balance. You know, if you do a lot of commercials, then then you really want to do something more creative. 
And if you do a lot of indie features, you just get tired. And, and although it's creatively satisfying, like you might not be able to pay your rent, you know, or whatever. So it's it's I think it's a it's great to find a balance to you know do the commercials until a really great script comes along, and hopefully by then, you know, you've saved up enough so that you can go do the seventy five dollar a day slog through wherever. I think we've all. <coughs> <laughs> yeah, my um, my gaffer who's done, I mean, like big movies, and I'm lucky enough to get him, you know, in the, the sort of, I'd say the autumn maybe of his. He'd probably say that too. But he came back, and we do a lot of, you know, car commercials and a lot of beauty stuff and all that stuff. But he was like, Dog Bowl was like my favorite job this year. And that was really great to hear. He said that to me yesterday as we were wrapping up. It was nice. Is that because of the creative? Definitely, yeah, yeah, no, and yeah. And everybody, I mean, the people I choose to work with on the commercial side get that. You know, they're filmmakers, they love film, they're, they're into that, but they also have lives and families and they need the commercial thing, but they also really can dive in. You know, they, they, can, they like a project that we can all sink our teeth into and let the takes be longer than six seconds, you know, and like, you know. So how do you... Uh, find yourselves uh, shooting an independent film. How are you selling yourself to the to the director? How do you get involved? Is it is it just relationships? You went to film school with them, or you have you know a past um, a past experience, or is your agent? You can kind of talk about how you how you get jobs. Uh, sure. Do it. Well, for indie shorts, uh, well, indie the, the I'll just talk about the short that I just did. Uh, or that's here, uh, a million miles away. I had seen I'd seen our directors work around. We kind of ran into into each other in Chicago a couple times. And I'd seen her work, and I'd always kind of admired it. So at just one point, I just kind of emailed her, and I was like, "Hey, I'd love to work on your one of your films at some point." And, and it, it was like a year and a half, almost two years later, I got this email, and she's like, "I'm going to do this movie, and I'm looking for a DP." And I was like, "Great!" So that was kind of how that happens. Commercial-wise, it's in Chicago. It's a different kind of commercial animal in Chicago. We have a lot of out-of-town DPs come in, so it's good to. Yeah, it's all right. It happens. It kind of. Been, we shot in Chicago. Yeah, we've kind of. Uh, yeah, I, I, I deal with it. Um, but so it's good to befriend the coordinators, the PMs, the producers in Chicago, and that's kind of how I, you know, get work through commercial stuff. Um, the film I shot uh, last year was at South by was 10,000 kilometers and that was the one I was telling you about with the 23 minute take that director I oh thank you <laughs> that director um, I knew him from film school I shot a couple of his shorts and um, he brought me out to Barcelona and I was only American it was like pretty fun weird experience great film um, and from that then it made it easier to get this next one unexpected because the people had seen it and talked about it and so it's like seems like it's like I don't know I haven't shot that many features but like of my work it seems like people either come across it and write to me for shorts or things or I just meet and how did you get in touch with Chris yeah so um Andrea Rowe the producer reached out to me someone who had been at South by with a film recommended you should check this this out check out her work and Andy and I had a great meeting then I had a Skype meeting with Chris I was actually in the middle of a camera prep and we had like I was like 
trust me, I didn't set this up on purpose. You know, it's this like beautiful Alexa behind me. Like, of course I'm very busy. <laughs> but then our Skype didn't work. We had to go out and out, sit on the phone for the rest of it. But she was just so cool and such a real down-to-earth person. We had like a great chat. And then um, I heard back from them later. They were, we want to work with you. And I was like, that's great. I love your move. The script is awesome. And I think we could do some really cool stuff. Um, I think just relationships over the years seems to be how, uh, you know, that's what I'm hearing you guys say. Yeah. Uh, and that's true for me too. It's like the guy that you gaffed that thing with when you were a gaffer 10 years ago is now X, Y, Z, you know, and things. Yeah. And then, you know, and then just really like being open to those opportunities. Now, now do you have an agent for your commercial? Oh yeah. Agent? And he's right there. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, for commercial work, like, that's how, I mean, I don't know, we kind of call it maybe, like, triangulation, or it's like, you know, you, you know, I know this person from here, and then they vouch for you on this side, and, like, and then that went well, and then, oh, maybe in five years they'll remember, you know, they'll think back, and it's, that's kind of how I've always just built the stuff, built the stuff, built the stuff. And then feature-wise, I think there are people in here that'll say I've been too picky and not said, or whatever, just not like done enough, but uh, that will, you know, that's gonna change. And um, no, but being again, open and making, making the most of the, uh, relate again, like the, the feature that I did was a relationship from way back and a triangle through a friend, through a thing, and then, you know, and then even Dog Bowl kind of came through the agency, I think at first, and then a couple phone calls and people Oh, do you know this guy? Oh, yeah. Give him a call. And then, yeah. David? I think the weirdest um, connection for a, a feature I had was I was a DIT on a, on a feature a long time ago. And the, the camera PA and I became really good friends. And he was out in Long Island in, involved in, like, the hardcore music scene. So all these dudes that, like, don't drink, don't do, do drugs, and just are, like, covered in tattoos and like his friend recommended, uh, he, he recommended me to his friend who knew someone else who was also in this hardcore scene who had written a horror film that ended up coming back to me like six years later or something. So that was, that was kind of the weirdest way. Yeah, exactly. So be nice to your PAs. <laughs> so you guys are all here at Sundance. I'm just curious if there's any other festivals that you like going to uh, that are out there. Um, Share, share that. Um, yeah, we were back there before we started talking. I was talking about Camera Image as like an amazing festival, especially if you're a cinematographer or interested in cinematography. Uh, it's the only festival I've been to where when you meet people and then they're like, oh, you're the DP? Oh, you're the director? And then, like they don't see you anymore. But at Camera Image, they're like, oh, you're the director? Nice. You're the DP? And they're like, leaning, we want to talk to you. And, um, and they just have a lot of really amazing films, like amazing speakers, like it was a really wonderful experience. It's in Poland every year in November. Um, I think it's usually now in Bydgosz is like the city. Correct. Correct. And it's fantastic to go to. And the films are from all over the world. Really beautiful pieces, like great storytelling, visual and narrative, or visual and just like performance. It's like one of the cinematographers that was nominated for best cinematography this year, uh, Lukas. I don't remember his last name, so he might be able to help me with that, but. Uh, he has a film uh, called Ida, 
but oh, uh, he got nominated, and uh, I think that's really where it really go see it. Hit, it's amazing. Uh, uh, brought some attention from a cinematography standpoint. He was on a panel, and uh, all these great cinematographers: John Schwartzman, uh, Faden Papa Michael, Stephen Poster, Stephen Lighthill, I believe. Uh, they were all just amazed at this at this uh, young cinematographer's work. So. Uh, it's a great festival. So if we're having a panel on cinematography at a film festival, I had to throw a plug in for Camera Homage. And actually how they started this, to bring it back to Sundance, is um, Merrick, who runs the festival, wanted to create a Sundance in Europe. And he talked to Robert Redford, and Robert Redford said he didn't think that was going to be a success. He said, why don't you do one on cinematography? So it was really Redford that really drove him to do a panel on cinematography. So. You know, as Fletcher camera lenses, I sent Zoe, my colleague in the back, uh, what, about seven or eight years ago, and it's just a great film festival, so I would encourage anybody that uh, loves cinematography to be involved with that. And submit, submit to it. We, we submitted as a student short and got into it um, a couple years ago, and it was fantastic. And some people didn't know, and then, but the people who know of it, they're like, wow, that's a huge honor to get into that festival, so don't rule it out when you... Have your, have your different films, like submit to it. Yeah, I'd also encourage you to submit the ASC. You were honored at, at the ASC a number of years ago, and uh, I would you know, suggest that you submit to that uh, as a young uh, cinematographer, as well as AICP. Uh, they have a student category, and they don't always uh, get a lot of submissions, so I would encourage people to do that. Anything else you want to add before we open it up to, to questions from the audience? I have like one thing I want to throw in. We were all talking about how how you get those features and your relationships and this and that. And I kind of feel like um, as a cinematographer or whatever you're doing in film, if you look up at the top of the mountain, you're like seeing these films that you want to do and they seem so far away and huge, then you might not pursue them. But if you think about how you would actually climb that mountain, it would just be like, what's the rocks right in front of you that you're just starting to like walk forward and the incline is like slow and then over time you're eventually going to get there to the top so like just just keep shooting and just keep making movies and don't worry so much about how long it's going to take or where you're going to how you're going to get to the top just go just keep making stuff I think that's really important anything else? I think that's so awesome <laughs> any questions from, from out there? we put you to sleep our job is <laughs> I would just say one, one thing. Um, I think a lot of people today, especially with, with DSLRs coming out a few years ago that are able to shoot video, a lot of people have become very obsessed with the gear and they want to buy new cameras every year, new lenses. I don't think it matters, you know. I mean, 50 years ago, people were shooting on, on like 50 ISO film, you know, with these big clunky cameras and they went out and made you know, amazing, amazing films like Lawrence of Arabia. And you see the... the, the camera on the tripod, the thing is bigger than like the three dudes trying to hold it up. Yeah. And um, I think focus on the story and really just see what it, what you can do to tell that story as best as possible. And that's what I was talking about when you were talking about as you're collaborating with people, not like bankrupting them. Where it doesn't, if you are a good storyteller, a good storytelling team, you're going to make a great movie whether you have the most expensive thing or you have not the most expensive. It's like making a safe space for those awesome performances to happen and those like little cinematic moments that you can like work into. You did touch on something, not to bring it back to gear, but you talked about ASA. All these cameras have these incredible ASAs, you know, that just go beyond your wildest imagination. 
where do you find yourself shooting? Are you using these extreme ASAs? And is it something that does affect the budget and the, the lighting package? You know, are you seeing changes in your lighting packages with these newer cameras and the higher sensitivity? It seems like they're making faster lenses, faster cameras, and bigger lights. And I think we all want all of that. <laughs> However, you can really do some beautiful night exterior work now with less. And um, as we negotiate the Teamster contract in Los Angeles right now, it's one of those things where if you want to do, like there are some lights that you can light up city streets with be, and not have to park another generator across the street, which is another it's a big deal money-wise. Like that's, that we're talking real money there. And so that's what the, the cameras I think have been really great for night exterior work. And yeah, where well, I'm exploiting that with just a little light and a putt-putt around the corner. And then that's not a big generator, which is another guy that, you know, so um, that's helping out a lot. Um, yeah, I feel like uh, recently I've been shooting a lot of web series in New York. I don't know if anyone's watched High Maintenance, which has been on Vimeo. Um, and we definitely have made use of the C300's high ISO. Like, try not to, but then you're, it's, like, so much more relaxing when you're like, okay, actually, we're going to be fine. Like, I can just crank this up a little bit. Um, but it, it, it actually makes new challenges in a way because suddenly your lights are, like, too powerful sometimes. And then you're going to have, you have to, you get to have fun and go to Home Depot and make, like, weird little lighting setups that, like... This is now a giant, Ikea. yeah, the Ikea weird Ikea or whatever, yeah. And you get to, so it's like a new window of creativity opening up there. Night exteriors are, are fantastically easier. And I, I've been using a lot of also the Hive lights. I don't know if you guys have used those yet, but they can run off a camera block battery at night. So if you're on a small short or something and they can't like afford even like a little generator, you can get camera block batteries and you can still like get your night exterior shots, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Can you talk about aspect ratios? Do you get asked to, to film in 235? question was about aspect ratios, and are you being asked to film in 235? I'd say, like, aspect ratio, I think, is another aspect. It's another tool of your storytelling, and it's something that you need to really, like, talk to your director about and see what fits the story most. Um, the, last, the two features I just did are both 185, and the first one, we have a lot of computer screens, it's a long-distance relationship. There's a lot of, like, video chatting. And 235 would have just been a horrible crop on all of those. The square within the square would not have looked good. And this last film, Unexpected, um, the two leads are pregnant. So if we'd done 235 from close-ups and stuff, you're not really going to be able to tell as they change and get more pregnant. So we like, 185, like, serves this better and makes it feel more naturalistic also, what we were doing. But it's, it's a creative tool. Yeah, I mean, 235 really, it looks great in the letterbox and it's beautiful and sometimes the anamorphic flares are there if you're using the right lenses, but it really affects like how us, you see this room and your set has to be wide and your lights are now far away and it really impacts, it has a huge impact on, um, you know, the practicality of the, f the filming more so than, you know, even, well, it does have an impact on the final look for sure, but it's like, I haven't been asked to shoot two, three, five, a couple music videos or, so, you know, or a commercial, you know, that really wants that style. 
but then they have the money to support that. But indie stuff, I haven't been. Are you getting a lot of? seeing a lot of uh, independent films that want 235. They want anamorphic, uh, almost just for the sake of having anamorphic. And, uh, I've done it on some shorts. I think that anamorphic actually, um, one thing that can be great about it is how it can isolate. The, you have such, it's such a control. The audience can only look here. Like it's really like focusing in the eye and where it travels in the frame. And um, I think it can actually be great for like super tight close-ups and stuff like that. Like so, it, again, you just have to find the right project that fits it. I think. Another question out there. The question, just so everybody can hear, the question was about being a woman cinematographer. I say it's like um, it's double-edged sword when you talk about this because the more we talk about it as a minority, then it remains a minority. And we were talking about this backstage um, because I have a strange name. People often don't know that I am a woman. And one time I showed up to shoot second unit, my friend was DPing, and the producer was like, "Oh, you're a woman." And I was like, "Well, I left my dick at home. I can go get it if you want it." You know, like I don't know that that affects my shooting, but if you need, you know. And then he's like, "Oh, you're funny. We're gonna be fine." And he hired me like three more times, so clearly the work spoke for itself. But I do think um, I was really lucky in that I went to UCLA's master's program for cinematography, and they take two to three people every year, and one or two of those three is usually a woman. And so I didn't know that it was not a field for women, as people say, or historically like male things. So I was just like, yeah, I'm an awesome shooter. I love shooting. This is what I do. I do it all the time. And then I got out of school and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess it is weird or it is like unusual. But I kind of feel like the more we say that it is that it's, it's weird because you do need to say that so that hopefully it will encourage it to change. But all at the same time, you don't want to think about it that way. You don't want to limit yourself. And it's the same thing I was saying about the climb that mountain, just like keep going forward and keep shooting stuff. And if you want to do it, you can do it. And don't let don't let the guy who's like you're a woman like stand in your way. Like, I don't know. I'm not a woman, but I would like to respond to the question. No, just like I, we were talking about it in the back, and I said, well, you know, my, I have two girls, two daughters, and they see me come home, they know I love my job, they know I come home happy, and it's like an awesome deal. And they, uh, they're like, Dad, we want to do your job. Whether it's, you know, they don't know if it's they want to be directors or DPs or whatever, but they know they like that. And I certainly wouldn't want them to be as, a, as their father, I wouldn't want them to be discouraged in any way. You know, so I think it's so important that they see that, you know, that, it's, it, that we break that uh, whatever, you know. Well, ultimately, I think who shoots your movie comes down to, like, the director and the DP, how they vibe, like, what their different experiences in the world will bring to the project, whether they're a woman or a man. How did they grow up? How do they feel about the issue that you're shooting? Like, you can have someone who like feels you can, I mean just because someone's a woman or a man doesn't mean they ex experience something the same way at all like I guess I grew up a tomboy or whatever that means but it just means that I like those things those are the things that I liked it doesn't it's like why do we need to I don't know you have to like put everybody in categories kind of it's like if you're a director meet this person and see if they understand your story how they how you want to tell it and like then that should be the only thing that matters. And you should like their lighting and how they shoot too, probably. But like really, just make sure they can tell your story. There was another question in the back. Um, I have sort of a 
How much time do you have? <laughs> um, no, there's, there's a lot from the technical perspective, you know, especially when you're doing like a very controlled dolly move or something like, like hitting marks. But I, I think the big thing and the really easy way to answer that is, is communication. You know, if, if your DP is the operator or if you have a camera operator, talk to them and, and see what they're doing. If you're going to change something, let them know and, you know, hopefully they'll be able to react to you. And it's, it's the same thing as any other relationship. It's just communication and that way you'll get the best out of it. I kind of feel like for me, I do my best work when the performances are really good. So, and it's like, then the camera is like dancing with the actor. And the, and the energy that you send to the camera and your performance, it inspires the rest of the crew and we'll send it back to you. And then that ends up making it really great. That being said, still the only thing that's like super hard is when there's like, you're really, you're doing like a super tight close-up and the person just wants to like rock, rock back and forth. And like maybe that you need to do that to get to the performance, but I'm just telling you, it might be out of focus. So like that, if you want, it's just like, but the more you can like really just be in your character and give it like your whole thing and be present with that, I think that will affect the rest of the shot. It just makes the shot work. Because even if like it's technically perfect, but there's a hollowness and the performance is not there, they're not going to use that take. So it's like... Um, I would say that everything... I really agree with everything you guys have said. Um, also, I think if you're... There's, there's two parts to being an actor on a, especially a longer project. One is like the performance and delivering and knowing and you know, being professional and everything that we're talking about. But there's also, you have a lot of downtime on the set. And I would say, you know, get to know your DP or your camera crew because there's a couple things. One is there's a lot of actors that become directors. So like what a great way to learn about the filmmaking process. It all happens within like five feet of that camera and like ask questions, talk to us. I mean, I worked, when I did American Son, we had, Nick Cannon was our main actor. And he had done a film with Shane Hurlbutt, Drumline, who was supposed to be here, Shane is not here. Very upsetting. Um, but when Nick came on my set, having worked with Shane, I mean, he was, he was into it. And he's directed films too, since, since he worked with me and with Shane, but it's like, he was very interested, very, you know, and it's a great way for you to like pass the time and go to film school as an actor is to just like get up there with the camera people and ask questions and look at the monitor and look at the shot and see how it's evolving even before we roll. And um, I encourage that because those actors that are filmmakers are, uh, are the, um, I think, tech, they end up being, they, we can help you with your performance. You know what I mean? I mean, it's in a way we can help you not look good, but like deliver what you're at wanting to deliver. You know, whether it is with a subtle movement of the camera for handheld or whatever. You know, we'll get in tune with you. It's a great thing. It's a great opportunity for actors, especially on indies, you know, when you're not stuck in a trailer somewhere, you'd be there. One last question. Yes. Black and white. Definitely. If the story calls for it, it's like such an exciting, amazing sure. medium. Like, 
No, because black and white done well, you have to make a lot of choices while you're doing it because everything, you have to separate the different things. There has to be a lot of planning. And people who just like click it black and white later, you're not, you're gonna get a lot of like mid-tones. You're not gonna have a lot of good contrast. You're not gonna have good separation from your backgrounds. It's a tool. Sorry? Yeah, or they could be shot in color knowing that they're going to, to black and white, but they are lighting it for black and white, and they're uh, doing ex like choices for black and white. Um, I work for this director, uh, Jeff Barish, actually, and he carries a monochrome still camera set to black and white, and he lines up all the shots that way, and it's a great way to, even though we're shooting color, or it's going to be color, but it's a great way to compose because suddenly, and it, it works, it works. It's what you're talking about. It's like, oh. Okay, let's put her on the black chair, not that white couch by the window and this and that. And it's like you're making, it really boils down the image quickly, you know, as we're composing, because we can't turn the monitors black and white on a commercial or even an indie that's not going to be black and white. But, you know, you can make all those decisions. It helps you with framing and composition. Suddenly the images get real strong. It's a great kind of helper. I think it's also a great narrative tool. Like friends of mine made A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night that was here at Sundance last year. And that film, black and white, helps it so much. And I think partly because it already, the audience suspends its disbelief in this different way. It takes you to a different world. You know, the, having the black and white, it, does, it, it helps you get to these different places. So it's like, it can be a great narrative tool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I want to thank my panelists for, uh, for coming today. Thank you all for coming to the New York Lounge and hope that you get some bagels and cider and coffee. Uh, Cineverse, I have a couple of my colleagues I just want to introduce. Uh, Zoe, I referenced her a couple of times, Zoe Boris and Morgan uh, from our LA office and Chicago office. Uh, last With Cineverse we have offices in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Miami, Atlanta, and um, I don't know if I forgot one there, but uh, we, coming from Fletcher Camera, that's where, where I came from. Uh, we really like being a part of the community. That's one of the things I really like about the New York Lounge, and I would encourage you in each of our offices around the country, we like having panels, we like running educational events. Please reach out to us, and we'd like to be part of, part of the community. That's why we're here with New York. So thank you for coming.